there are only really three companies today that can manufacture advanced node chips. And again, what I mean by that is 10 nanometers and below. And they are TSMC, Samsung, and to some extent, um, Intel. Hi, this is Anita, the Global Trade Gal. Well, I'm here with Brent Omdahl. And um, I've known Brent for, gee, Brent, how many, how long has it been? I was just thinking about this today. I mean, Ruby was three years old, your daughter, and now she's joining, now she's um, entering she's, college this year. Right. So that she's 18. So that's 15 years ago we met and uh, must have been 2007. Yes, in, in, um, in Vietnam. So I've known Brent for a long time. And Brent is a commercial attache for the U.S. Commercial Office. Did I get that right? I am. Um... I currently am the commercial chief at the American Institute in Taiwan, which is the de facto embassy to Taiwan, the de facto American embassy. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the commercial office and what they do? Because I think a lot of people don't know or understand exactly what the U.S. commercial office does. I know I probably don't. Oh, that's great. I'd, I'd be happy to. And let me just say, Anita, it's great to be with you and to talk to you this evening. Um, Unfortunately, we don't get a chance to see as each other as much as we would like, but I'm glad we can spend a little bit of time together this evening. So, so the commercial, actually the name of my organization is the Commercial Service. We're part of the US Department of Commerce within the International Trade Administration. Um, we are a global organization of uh, several thousand people. We have offices U.S. embassies and consulates around the world. And we have offices in about 100 U.S. cities, our domestic organization. And uh, we exist primarily to provide business services to American companies in overseas markets. That is kind of the way that we started and was part of our original mandate. And what I mean by that is we provide support services to American companies that are looking to enter foreign markets. And that might be something as simple as, you know, gaining a little bit of market intelligence uh, with regards to their product or service in the, the target market. But it could also be very involved, um, helping them find the right business partner, helping them launch a product, helping them successfully win a foreign government tender could also mean helping them work through market access issues. Um, we get involved with the American Chambers of Commerce overseas, so we work very closely with them. We work with other US government counterparts um, on issues you know, ranging you know, with the US Trade Representative's Office, for instance, and um, as new trade agreements are being negotiated or implemented, we work closely with the State Department um, that does a lot of uh, economic work in trying to advance U.S. economic policies overseas and um, also reporting back to Washington on, on what's happening in economies. So we sit within the embassy and we're part of kind of the embassy team, but our purpose really is to provide services to American companies. That mandate has expanded a little bit uh, in recent years, probably over the past 15 years or so. We also work 
do a lot of work in attracting investment, foreign direct investment, primarily greenfield investment, back to the United States. Um, and so uh, that's been a, a big part of my work here in Taiwan is compared to some of the other offices that I've served in uh, around the world. And just, just by way of background, I've been doing this now for about 18 years, 19 years. Wow. Uh, pri prior to that, I, um, I did work in the private sector in the U.S. and overseas a little bit for about 10 or 11 years. Um, and, uh, but with the commercial service and doing this uh, commercial diplomacy work, we call it, I've, uh, we've, as a family, have done two tours in Southeast Asia, in um, the Philippines, and also in Vietnam, where we got to know each other. Right. I did a, a tour in Atlanta, Georgia, for a couple of years, working at our U.S. Export Assistance Office, and our colleagues there work primarily with U.S. companies and, and help them with all things related to exports, whether it's trade finance or um or documentation required for export to helping them then uh, land and, and be successful in foreign markets. Um, and we work with them closely. They, they kind of turn their clients over to us in the overseas field. Then after, after Atlanta, um, I also then spent about eight years on the African continent, which is a very interesting place to do business. Um, in uh, spent four years in South Africa and three and a half in Nigeria, which is one of the most interesting places in the world to do business. If you can do business in Nigeria, you can do business anywhere. So why do you, why do you say Nigeria is interesting to do business? Safety well, issues or just um, uh, red, government red tape or? Well, uh, that's part of it. Um, I think, first of all, there's something called the, the Lagos hustle, the Nigerian hustle. And that is that everybody uh, is trying to do business. Everybody's trying to survive. And the, the Nigerians, the Africans in general, but the Nigerians in particular, very much, um, you know, hustle. They want to make things happen. And that, that creates a real kind of vibrant business community, whether it's, you know, you're buying something on the street or doing a big oil deal. Um, so that's one aspect of it. Another aspect is that, um, as you say, there is a lot of corruption. It's a very difficult place to navigate. They've kind of built their modern economy on oil and have neglected other parts of the economy, um, particularly agriculture. That's, you know, starting to resurge now. But the interesting thing about oil is that the government has tried to run itself on oil revenue. And that's just not, number one, not sustainable. And number two, not a good idea because oil then becomes, um, the revenue from oil becomes everybody's property and nobody's property. A lot, you know, when a lot of people are touching oil and touching the revenue that comes from oil, um, it's easy to, you know, to, argue that, um, well, it's just a little bit, it's the people's money and I'm in a position of power and, um, you know, I can, I can wield that power just to enrich myself a little bit. And so it's, it's very difficult. Um, 
there are a lot of issues in Nigeria, but it's a it's a great place to do business. If you can get a project done there, you your returns are fantastic. They're fabulous. Or if you provide the right huh. product. I have a question to ask you about commercial service. I want to ask. Um, so do you only work with big companies or do you work with small? Because I noticed on your website, it's small, medium, large, just so people understand, like, how big do they have to be to approach the commercial service? And uh, let's say somebody's interested in business in Nigeria or South or somewhere else. Uh, where would they go to find out how they could contact somebody to help them? Right. So that's that's a great question. Um, so you don't have to be a big company. In fact, our mandate initially was to serve a small and medium sized company. And that's still at the core of what we do. You know, it's kind of meant to level the playing field. We do charge for many of our services uh, in large part because um, it's not completely in an, uh, a public good when we provide a service to a specific company. You know, it's accruing to a private citizen or a group of private citizens that belong to a company. And so we charge for it. We have kind of uh, the, the prices are subsidized, though, and, and we charge more for large companies than we do for small companies, small and medium sized companies, we have a, a pricing structure that's into three. So but to, to receive kind of our what we call our trade and export promotion services, um, you, you do have to be an American company um, and uh, you, you know, you have to have operations in the United States. We will support kind of foreign owned companies in the United States. The political mandate for what we do is to strengthen, grow or maintain jobs in the United States. So um, we do support a lot of small companies. And, um, you know, these companies will participate in trade missions or they'll come to us directly with support from our local offices or a state trade office um, and seeking, you know, support services. And, um, and then we'll work with them directly. Uh, it, we typically on the ground meet a lot of large companies that have operations in the country as well. You know, a typical company that we'd work with is General Electric and they bid here in Taiwan, General Electric is bidding on a lot of government uh, power tenders. And so they are seeking uh, what we call advocacy support, where we will uh, message out to the government on their behalf uh, in favor of their bids when they're in a competitive situation against uh, other foreign competitors. And, and part of that is to to help alleviate the pressure that a lot of companies feel in foreign markets to offer bribes or uh, to play uh, not above board, which companies from other countries do quite a bit. And so it's, this is a service that's tended to be you know, pretty successful in helping companies navigate some of those uh, pitfalls. You know, recently Nancy Pelosi, as we know, visited Taiwan, and one of the things that I think came out from that was about the fact that Taiwan produces eighty percent of the world's chips. Um, if I'm correct on that, I don't know if I'm correct on the exact figure or not. You might know more about that. I um, mean, part of it was trying to I understood to get some of the chip manufacturing back to the United States. Is is um, I was wondering any thoughts or comments on that about I know why Taiwan. First of all, it's amazing that such a small island produces so something that's so important. 
to so many uh, manufacturers. Yes. So, and, and it is a huge risk that they are doing eighty percent, um, and the rest of the world's doing twenty. Right. So that that um, statistic is not entirely correct. So they produce um, something on the order of 70 or 80% of the world's advanced chips. So that would be like, if you know the geometry of uh, semiconductors, 10 nanometers or below. So there are a whole host of chips that are manufactured well above that. And you know those manufacturing sites are located throughout the world, um, in Europe, in North America, the United States, and in other places. Um, in Asia that now a lot of semiconductor manufacturing has moved to Asia. The United States invented semiconductors and the semiconductor industry. Uh, but over time, it's been an interesting evolution of the industry. We have companies like Intel, which call themselves IDMs, integrated device manufacturers. So they get involved in all aspects of semiconductor uh, design and manufacturing. But uh, years ago, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, uh, when TSMC was coming online, TSMC is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, uh, which is a private company, though it does have about 10% ownership from uh, the Taiwan authorities. Um, okay. they, they came out with a business model that they were going to you know, be a contract manufacturer. This is a kind of something that Taiwan companies do in a lot of industries, in a lot of supply chains. Um, so it's not unique to semiconductors and that they would just focus on that aspect of the business. Um, I think a lot of semiconductor companies liked that uh, because it allowed them to focus on what they were perceiving as higher value add aspects of the semiconductor supply chain. Uh, it took a headache off their plate. And so you, you saw companies, some American com companies get enormously wealthy um, by focusing on integrated chip design. Companies like NVIDIA, Qualcomm, Broadcom, mm. uh, others. Uh, and so you kind of then had this division of labor a little bit that then really also helped with innovation at the IC design level. But what TSMC proved is that they could do a lot of innovation at the manufacturing level as well. There are only really three companies today that can manufacture advanced node chips. And again, what I mean by that is 10 nanometers and below. And they are TSMC, Samsung, and to some extent, um, Intel, Intel as well. Uh, Intel... Uh, you know, but Intel also manufactures quite a number of chips uh, above 10 nanometers, as does TSMC. And, and a lot of those are ones that they design for themselves. And so they manage the whole process for their customers uh, for those larger or for those more or what we call lagging node or mature node chips. And a lot of those chips are used in various industries that the auto industry being, you know, paramount among those. Um, and so uh, it's, it's really a very interesting uh, industry. TSMC proved though, that they could perform incredible technological advancement in the manufacturing process. 
and have created uh, enormous value and have created enormous value for themselves, for the island of Taiwan, uh, by really um, manufacturing at ever smaller nodes. It's often, you know, IBM still is doing a lot of research and they're, they may even be more advanced in being able to produce. Uh, they recently came out with a two nanometer chip and... Wow. But what they don't do is manufacture in mass, and that's very difficult to do. TSMC is known for getting very high yields, you know, like 70% successful yields compared to Samsung, um, which is why they're kind of the number two player while TSMC is the number one player when it comes to um, just the, you know, manufacturing side of things um, of the house. But anyways, um, so if I hear you correctly, there's basically one major Taiwan manufacturer that's producing most of these advanced chips that are accounting for 70 percent of the output. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, wow. there are other large Taiwan fabs. United Microelectronics Corporation, UMC, is uh, another well-known one, but they have decided not to really play in the advanced node space. It's a very successful company um, and they, they do well, but they're not really in the same game. It, there is you know, this tendency towards monopoly uh, within the sector because, because capital costs are so massive to do these manufacturing facilities. And, and once you get a competitive advantage and, and make these advancements that um, TSMC has been able to do, then it's it's easier to just kind of buy your way vis-a-vis uh, -vis the the competitors because you have access to all this capital. You can you can put more money, uh, more capital investment into new fabs, and that's kind of what's happened, which has been a you know a little bit of. I would say a downer on, on competition at the manufacturing level. Now, that being said, that being said, you know, COVID and uh, kind of exposed our supply chains a little bit. Um, we right. had some demand anomalies as a result of COVID, particularly in the auto industry, but also in the medical device industry. Um, where demand went down for some of these devices, where demand really increased for home devices, computers, telephones, and other, um, other devices that were used at home because people were staying at home. And so as a result, we, we kind of ran into this problem where we didn't have enough semiconductors um, and now it's kind of the contagion of that is spread to other industries, including the, the computer and, and device industry. And so we also recognized through this that we didn't have any of the advanced manufacturing in the United States. And so, you know, we had been working in my office very much, very hard to with TSMC who is now building an advanced fab facility in Phoenix, Arizona, just north of Phoenix in Deer Valley. Wow. Okay. It's, it's a five nanometer plant. It's, it'll come online uh, sometime next year uh, for um, testing. 
manufacturing and, and then or for um, uh, and then full manufacturing a year later. Uh, but it's a it's a great development. What's been interesting is that, you know, there's a whole ecosystem around TSMC being able to do what they do, which is a kind of a very unique Sinju Taiwan based ecosystem. It includes a number of electronics, chemicals manufacturers, specialized device manufacturers um, and specialized uh, construction firms. And so some of those firms have had to had to uh, invest in the United States as well in the Phoenix area to help support TSMC's investment to have it come off. It's been a great development. It stimulated a bit of a resurgence. It um, has also kind of upped the competitive game. Uh, so Intel, you might have been able to see, has is, is come out and they, they're rejuvenating their foundry services. Most of the manufacturing that they have been doing has been really for themselves. But now they're going to be uh, re, they're redoubling their efforts in foundry services, which means they'll, they'll do contract manufacturing as well. Um, and they've announced investments in Ohio for a lot of those services, in addition to growing out the manufacturing that they have in, in Arizona and in Oregon. So it's been, it's been a very good thing. I have a question. Is chip manufacturing labor intensive? So will they be hiring quite a few people or is it more robotics? They're gonna, it's gonna be more the machineries and the, that type of high tech. So there certainly is a very strong advanced manufacturing component to this, uh, including robotics and including, you know, five and six G telecommunication communications on the shop floor. But semiconductor manufacturing is labor intensive and it is creating a huge number of jobs in the, in the Phoenix area and uh, in other places in the United States, not just for TSMC itself, but also those other um, support supply chain companies coming in as well. So, you know, right now there's, you know, some concern about uh, meeting the, the demand for um, this kind of workforce, it's not, right. it's not a situation that's unique to the United States. There's this dearth of semiconductor expertise around the world, including in Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is, you know, well known for producing a lot of engineers and uh, they have a, just a great ability to innovate by putting a lot of engineers on, on uh, manufacturing particularly in manufacturing on, on difficult projects, but, but they're also running up against uh, labor shortages as well here. So, um, you know, it's imperative for the United States and countries around the world to encourage their young people uh, to, to really study things like electrical engineering, chemical engineering, um, computer, you know, computer science, computer engineering and programming. These are all skills that are in high demand, um, particularly as, as the technology advances so fast. So, you know, um, I, have a, I have a comment on this, if I could have a comment about this, about their factory is, you know, I'm from, I'm from Wisconsin where Foxconn was. Yeah. 
and and I happen to know because I know people that worked at Foxconn. You know, the factory there is fell short of all of their you know people they were going to hire, and a lot of people kind of said the factory sort of failed. And uh, one, someone that I knew that worked there said one of the reasons was that the Taiwanese really didn't understand a lot of the US laws and regulations. Is that something that the commercial office comes in and tries to help with or, 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 or not? Yeah, so um, we, we definitely do. Um, the commercial service and, at, and what we call global market uh, in general. Global markets is our business unit. The commercial service is one uh, division within that business unit. And uh, this Select USA is another division, and that's a whole organization uh, that we are also, you know, a part of, but uh, we have an organization back in DC um, that provides these kind of support services to investors in the United States. Every state also has its own economic development organization that uh, is providing these services to investors to help them navigate doing business and navigate the investment process in the United States and in their particular state. I would say, um, all things considered, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, critical of any one investor in the United States. Foxconn was on a learning curve when they made that investment in Wisconsin. And you know, part of it was the product that they decided. Foxconn is a massive company, right? You know, they, they were trying to, I think, manufacture PC boards and or possibly computer screens there, which is very labor intensive. Mm. Um, it didn't it didn't go off very well, and they've been trying to figure out what to do with that facility. And I think they have figured out now that they're going to uh, manufacture electric buses there. That's been their, wow. their focus. Um, you know, we recently, we're just coming off a very successful trip to the United States with 191 Taiwan companies wow. um, represented by 265. Every year, the Department of Commerce, our Select USA, holds a massive investment conference in the United States, uh, in Washington, D.C. It was at National Harbor, Maryland this year. And um, we have investors from all over the world. There's a whole investment academy that takes place. All of the state economic development organizations are there to meet with investors. We have a whole startup activities that go on where there are pitch sessions going on, trying to track new technologies to the U.S. that are in the startup phase. It's, it's really quite a remarkable undertaking. But Taiwan for the past four years has... Um, had the largest delegations there. And this year, by far, we were twice the size of the next largest delegation, which came from India. Um, wow. But um, we have been very strategic in the way that we have approached trying to attract Taiwan companies to invest in the United States and really have strategically done it around uh, the supply chains that we've identified, that uh, the Biden administration identified as... Uh, supply chains that we need to strengthen. And in, in specific, they are semiconductors, number one. Two is electric batteries and, and electric vehicles that go around that. Uh, a third one has been next generation telecommunications technology. Um, a fourth one is medical or biotech. 
and medical supply chains. So we had a, a big, uh, a large biotech delegation from Taiwan. And then one that we didn't have, but it has been a focus is uh, rare earth minerals. Taiwan just kind of dabbles in that. They're, they're not as big of a contributor as say Australia and other places in, in that supply chain. But, um, but so we had companies from all of these industries, Taiwan companies, uh, at the Select USA conference. And then also we organized six different spinoffs. We, we were in nine different, we were in 12 different states uh, the week preceding and the week after looking at, uh, you know, working with the state EDOs and, and companies, American companies, looking at partnership opportunities and investment opportunities. Coming back to Foxconn a little bit, I say they have learned quite a bit about investing in the United States and they as a large global multinational company, they have investments in the United States. They recently made an investment in Phoenix where wow. they will be manufacturing um, electric charging equipment and technology that will go into the build out of uh, the US uh, infrastructure for electric vehicles. Wow. Um, they also purchased uh, in Lordstown, Ohio, um, a manufacturing facility that was once a GM facility and then was Lordstown Motors, um, where they're now manufacturing um, trucks for Lordstown Motors, electric vehicle trucks, electric trucks there. Um, and so uh, there are a whole host of Taiwan EV companies within that supply chain that came along with us on that to, to kind of see what's going on both with the new electric vehicle manufacturers in the United States, such as Rivian and um, Lucid and Nikola and others. Um, and also the traditional manufacturers like GM and Ford. There's a big transition at those companies now as well, who will be manufacturing major in, in, in larger, much larger quantities, um, electric vehicles. So I think, you know, over the next five to seven years, we're hitting a critical mass where all of this over the next decade will be built out. And so that's an industry where we'll also see, I think, further investment by Taiwan companies in the U.S., which creates jobs, it creates, uh, brings wow. new technologies to the U.S., you're in an exciting part of the world, I think. Now, why do you think uh, the Taiwanese are so good at all this technology stuff? I mean, a lot of the major technology companies are are actually in Taiwan, and Taiwan's just a small little island, actually. Yeah, well, they've made it a priority. I mean, you know, it's some of those great Asian uh, attributes that do well. They're hardworking and industrious. They put uh, a lot of emphasis on education. Um, you know, it's kind of a master's degree in engineering is, you know, kind of a, a rite of passage. It's kind of what every Taiwanese kid, you know, kind of aspires to. I remember when I was growing up in the United States in my era, you know, everybody wanted to be a lawyer and, you know, half of my friends went to law school. Uh, then it kind of transitioned over to everybody wanted to be an investment banker, right? And everybody was getting into finance and we still have a lot of that today. These are, these are industries where the, you know, the U.S. excels um, in finance and capital 
markets and, um, you know, uh, hedge funds and um, venture capital. Um, and it's, it's kind of the same for Taiwan. Engineering has been what they excel in. And they're not really known for their brands. They're more known for being um, technology and equipment providers. So they kind of started this model in the auto industry, in the bike industry. Um, right. You know, a Giant is a well, Giant is one company that has, Taiwan company that has actually created a brand. And they did that because they had to. But, you know, they were making all the Schwinn bikes years ago. Um, nobody, you know, knew it was a giant bike. But um, when Schwinn decided to, to move their manufacturing to China and to, to find other suppliers, they, they had a decision to make, you know, what were they going to do? And that's when they kind of became a brand company. But most, most Taiwan companies have not needed to do that. Um, I mean, most people don't know about Foxconn, but it's a, it's a massive company, um, you know, the, by a, the brand name. It's, and it's known by Honhai in Taiwan. Um, so anyways, there are just a whole host of companies like that in various industries that are suppliers, you know, in, in the 5G space, you have companies like Pegatron and Compal, Wistron, that you know, Americans don't really know about that are bigger names here in Taiwan, but they provide, you know, they provide technology that go into, say, a number of things. Wistron is a company, for instance, that contract manufactures data servers for well-known American brands like HP and others. Um, and they do, you know, a lot of that in Mexico uh, and then over the border in Texas as well. So that's kind of been that's kind of been their economic play as a country. They're 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 better like a lot of Asian countries. They're better at industrial policy than the U.S. is. And when when it comes to um, not that the U.S. doesn't have an industrial policy, the U.S. has been very good at funding a lot of research. Then that gets commercialized at our universities and kind of the university um, startup you know, complex together with venture capital firms that had come to define, say, Silicon Valley, and that we now see in many other places in the United States. Um, what Taiwan has is a, a really kind of strategic government-funded research coming out of E-Tree, um, which is, uh, I don't even remember what it stands for, but it's uh, industry research um, that's how TSMC got their start. So it's the Taiwan wow. government putting resources into that. And then they try to commercialize a lot of the technologies. Um, so it sounds so, a bit like as an American, I feel like we have a lot of catching up to do. Well, we do have some catching up to do, but, you know, America does very well at a number of things. Um, you know, part, part of the challenge that TSMC is having is luring American engineers into manufacturing because, you know, manufacturing kind of has had this um, reputation as being, you know, 
less cool, less sexy, less a place where you know, kids with high tech degrees want to go. They want to go program in Silicon Valley somewhere and, you know, uh, be part of a startup that and, and possibly make it rich. And, um, and so I think TSMC, Intel and others are trying to change that narrative a little bit. Um, and bringing, you know, more technology people into their, into their companies. Um, but that, you know, we do, we do very well at programming. We do very well at attracting the best talent from around the world. And then a lot of them become American citizens too, which has kept our economy vibrant and growing uh, when you combine, you know, with uh, the smart people that we already have in the United States. Wow. This has been really fascinating. I've learned so much about the chip industry I didn't know. I, um, you know, I usually ask like all of my um, guests um, this question. So what inspires you to do what you do? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question. You know, I, um, so I, I work for the U.S. government. Um, I wasn't quite sure that that's what I wanted to do. I, I do enjoy my job. Um, be very intense at times and, and at times I, I work more than I want to, but at other times it has some perks as well. I, I get, uh, you know, I just came off of a home leave where I had five weeks off, which was really nice. And you don't get that typically with a private sector job. Um, and I, I was able to do that, but it does get very, very busy at times. Um, so, but what, what motivates me? You know, I'm patriotic. I grew up uh, patriotic. I, and then um, having lived overseas as a kid and then serving a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints kind of opened me up, my eyes up to the world. And so I was looking for an occupation that uh, would allow me to, um, to see the world. And I, I love it because, you know, this is the fifth country I've worked in in this job. And I've been able over the past 18 to 20 years, learn five new markets, five new cultures, uh, different ways of doing business and uh, different societies. And that's, that's been exciting um, for me and for my family as well, being able to raise my kids in that environment. Um, and then, you know, there's a service component to this as well, uh, serving my country. Again, you know, I mentioned I was, I feel really patriotic and so I, I do get some benefit out of that. Um, you know, I don't make as much as I think that I would in the private sector if I had stayed entirely in the private sector. And so that's a bit of a trade-off, but the job does uh, have some perks. You know, it's a kind of a traditional expatriate job, which, you know, private sector companies are doing less of these days, but it's enabled my kids to go to some top schools, uh, private schools around the world. Um, and really opened up opportunities for them that way and inspired them in, in certain ways. Um, so that, that has been great as well. Um, so anyways, those are some of the motivations for, for me. And I'll just, you know, I will say in my personal life that it's a motivation to me as well. I'm very active in my church. Right. And um, it's been able give me the opportunity to serve in my church in five different countries right. in very unique ways that I just would not have been able to do any other way. 
And um, I've, I've really, my, I and my family have cherished uh, those opportunities and those experiences. And you meet lots of interesting people like me along the way. <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> you have friends all over the world, right? I do, and it's, it's actually really cool. I do, I have friends all over the world. Um, in fact, tonight after you, this conversation later, I'm talking with um, some friends who I know from the church in Nigeria who have started a business and uh, they, they want to kind of update me on what they're doing. They're doing some interesting things. Uh, they've developed some software that's really for the Nigerian education market, but from, um, from the export or from the international business side, they, um, they've been exporting hibiscus and other crops from Taiwan or from Nigeria rather to places like Mexico and the United States where it's been processed further and made into like hibiscus tea. Um, now they've, they've, they're starting a business where they're gonna export um, palm PKS, palm kernel shells, which okay. you know, can be used as a bio feed uh, for power production, you know, as a replacement, say, to coal. Um, and there's, you know, wood pellets are in huge demand right now because of disruptions in the energy market caused by the war in Ukraine and, and PKS is in, in huge demand as well. And Nigeria has a lot of palm kernel, a lot of palm trees and, and palm oil. So interesting. Wow, uh, we live in such a fascinating world, don't we? We do. We do. It's uh, and it's it's fun to look at it through the world of business. You know, at the end of the day, um, when we do business as individuals, as companies, and as nations together, it aligns our interests. It makes us work towards the same goal, and that really has been one of the most powerful. I I say the most powerful foreign relations tool, foreign policy tool that the United States has had and has leveraged uh, in the modern day and, and previously before that uh, to really create peace in the world mm. and to create allies uh, as well. You know, the fact that we've been able to open up our markets to a lot of countries um, has created development in these countries and peace. In Vietnam is no right. better example of that. You know, we went to war with Vietnam. And then afterwards, you know, by 2001, we had finalized a bilateral uh, investment and, and trade agreement with Vietnam that created over a million jobs in the yeah. textile industry, it brought in a, a huge amount of investment. We opened our markets to, to furniture and and clothing from Vietnam. And that has really been part of their ascent as an economic powerhouse now in Southeast Asia. And so, you know, that really is because we reduced those tariffs to zero and gave incentives for them to sell into our market. And that's, right. that, that's a great, um, a great example. Well, uh, Brent, this has been really great to be able to talk to you. It's been very informative. Thank you so much for your time. I, I've really, you know, I've learned so much about Taiwan and business and everything. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. You, you bet, Anita. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, 
I, I enjoy having these conversations. So thank you. This is Anita from the Global Trade Gal. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. And we'd like to thank our production team, especially Rico, for putting this all together. And thank you all of you for listening. We appreciate you.